Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Hey, folks who bought tickets to my San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, Napa, San Francisco run. I've got new dates for you because I waited till the last minute so I could probably hopefully test negative for COVID, but at nine days in, I tested positive yesterday morning, so I had to change those dates. Here are the new dates. Your tickets will be honored for these dates. Napa, Friday, February 18th. San Francisco, Saturday, February 19th. San Luis Obispo, Saturday, March 5th. Santa Barbara, Sunday, March 6th. Those are the new dates. You should be getting emails from the venues. I'm sorry, but it felt like the right thing to do as opposed to say, hey, I did my 10 days indoors. Who cares if I'm still a little virusy? I want to spread laughter, not disease. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? Well, you know, first off, I'll say it again in case you forwarded through it or whatever. You know, I, I got this COVID. I tested positive for COVID. Let me look at the calendar. What day would it have been? It would have been the 18th. I felt a little sick on the 17th. And then the 18th, I tested 17th, the morning negative, tested the 18th, the morning positive. So that was a week ago, Tuesday. And I didn't want to cancel the dates because, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe I can get in under the wire. Then I tested yesterday and it came back positive. So I like I had to do it. I had to pull the trigger. I don't know what other people do. I don't know who other people are. I guess theoretically at 10 days in with no symptoms per se, I mean, no fever, you know, no aches, no pains, no, but whatever. I mean, my voice is still fucked up. I'm still stuffy. I'm a little tired, but theoretically at 10 days, given CDC, um, uh, rules, I could go out in the world. But I don't think that means perform. I mean, I could go out in the world with my N95 mask on, but I can't go out in the world and get on stage and spew my uh, vitriolic comedy along with my spraying viral mist. I imagine that I'm probably not contagious, but that's where it's at. At nine days, which was yesterday, uh, you know, I tested positive again, which I don't think is unusual. Uh, symptomatically my energy's better i can taste and smell i've had no fever at all my chest is a little tight my voice is a little scratchy my head's a little stuffed up i'm a little tired that's what's happening you know hopefully i'll move through it unless out of nowhere like tomorrow i just get overwhelmed with uh with covid but uh, hopefully that won't happen i got boosted i feel that's probably what's keeping me level 
But I do apologize for the new dates. And again, if you didn't get them, uh, San Luis Obispo, I uh, rescheduled for Saturday, March 5th. Santa Barbara uh, for Sunday, March 6th. Now, your tickets will be honored. You should have heard from the venue. Napa, uh, I rescheduled for Friday, February 18th. And San Francisco has been rescheduled for Saturday, February 19th. Um, Those are all go. Hopefully you can make it. Your tickets will be good for those shows. The venue should have, have, have contacted you. That's what I know. I will not have COVID then. If I cancel then, it'll be something for something awful, more awful, <laughs> or something amazing. I do not plan on canceling. I can't stand canceling. I feel guilty. It took a lot for me to fucking accept it. Accept that this is out of my fucking control. Goddamn COVID. And also just, you know, I feel more relieved that uh that i got these replacement dates thank god i got a good agent genius uh booking agent joe schwartz so all right that's out of the way sorry if i sound a little covety today on the show dana stevens uh is here she's the film critic for slate and the co-host of the slate culture gab fest uh when i had uh, film historian mark harris on not too long ago he said Dana was his favorite film critic. She's written a new book. That's what's up. Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Huh? Lofty business. Great book. Look, I don't know what's going to happen ultimately as we head into authoritarianism and just the sort of tsunami of uh, the the cultural victory of stupidity over... Already, uh, intellectualism has been marginalized, and there's little cloisters of people, small groups here and there. I'm not considering myself one of them necessarily, but you often wonder, or maybe I should say I often wonder, what does happen to thoughtful film criticism? What does happen to, you know, thoughtful poetry, thoughtful music, thoughtful films, art in general, uh, when uh, culture is steamrolled by authoritarian stupidity? Well, I imagine what happens is what always happens. It sort of goes underline or it gets squished or it gets moved or it just plugs along on its own with its minimal marginalized audience anyways. Hard to say. Maybe there'll be some, you know, pushback, you know, on the momentum that is happening in this country through art. I don't know if it'll be successful, but it it would be nice for us to watch those of us who care. But in talking to Dana about this book, which I read, which he's basically taking the story of Buster Keaton's career even his childhood in vaudeville, you know, up through his introduction into motion pictures, which was near the beginning of commercial motion pictures and just sort of runs the entire history of film and culture through Buster Keaton uh, coming out of vaudeville, which he was in a family of vaudevillians. And there's just great stuff in there. It's a great book and it's, it's very thoughtful. And he was a genius. He, he was a, a film genius and remains a film genius. And you go look at that stuff and it remains genius. But, you know, what is the appreciation level of somebody like Buster Keaton? Obviously, you know, Dana, who I talked to about this, was mildly obsessed and loved Buster Keaton and wrote this amazing book, which I read most of. I'm, I'm, there's a reason I'm telling you that, that I read most of it. 
Uh, and it, I thought it was, a, I learned a lot of things I did not know about vaudeville, about Keaton, about American history, about film criticism history, about film history in general, about the performers that were involved in silent films that went on to do talkies, about um, the politics of film, about child abuse laws in New York City at the turn of the century. I mean, the book is full of Amazing historical information. I learned about critics I'd never heard of. I learned about, you know, the the evolution and beginning of the studio system. I learned about, uh, you know, when film criticism actually started and took made a shift. You know, how the film industry in terms of the studio system was set up to to sort of uh, grease the wheels of criticism and tabloids and and uh, and and uh, magazines. You know, the, how the fix was in and what happened to the great silent stars and how disposable uh, the new talkie industry felt the silent period was, how hard it was to preserve or um even find copies of certain films, how much was destroyed of the genius of, you know, Chaplin, Arbuckle, um, Keaton, Mabel Norman, you know, the, the lot of them. And, you know, I've always sort of had a, a thing for some Hollywood history, but I'm no wonk for it. I'm no uh, intellectual for it. I'm no trivia master. So there was a lot in this book that kind of, you know, brings you through all of that, the relationships how everything, you know, what who was famous, who wasn't famous. And then sort of like through Buster Keaton's rise and fall, this guy was a genius. He was the greatest silent movie star under, you know, next to Chaplin that there ever was, arguably maybe as good as Chaplin. It's all sort of moves through him. And then he hit the skids a bit. He became, he was a horrendous alcoholic. His career went down the toilet. He was actually he had to suck it up and be a gag writer at MGM where he did his last couple of movies. Uh, before it all went away, it talked about his career, how he got kind of like shifted into the studio system and got lost and underappreciated. And like I said, ended up a gag writer for years at, you know, nothing that with nothing pay. And like, by the time I got to, I was, I got about three quarters of the way through the book. And when I was talking to Dana, I'm like, God, it doesn't end well. And she made it clear that it, it kind of did end well. And I read the rest of the book and he does sort of kind of claw back and get sober here and there. She actually talks about AA a bit in, at the beginning of AA, not assuming that Buster was in AA because there's no evidence of that, but it did happen around the time that he was trying to get sober initially through institutions and whatnot that AA came, came about. And, uh, he, she was able to sort of talk about the beginning of that uh, that uh, fellowship, which I'm part of. And, you know, Keaton did find a lot of work on television and in commercials and became universally appreciated again as his films were sort of reengaged with and reassessed. And uh, he did some work in live performing and clowning in Europe. So there is a bit of a happy ending that I didn't know about when I talked to Dana. But this is me talking to Dana Stevens about her book, Cameraman. Uh, which is available now wherever you get books. And it was an engaged, exciting conversation. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say 
essay in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. This book, like, I, I like the book. I like Buster Keaton. I like uh, I like Hollywood history. I'm I'm almost done with it. I was rushing to get through it. I didn't. I wasn't able to finish it all the way. But I know how it ends. Not it's not a happy ending. <laughs> it's not. Well, I don't know how far along you are, but his ending was happy and not happy. I mean, I feel it was like happy because of Eleanor. Yeah, like yeah. he he managed to get in professionally. I think it's it's pretty hard to say whether his ending was happy yeah. or not. And I feel like that's a question that haunts you when you start reading about Keaton. Was like, was he how disappointed professionally was he in his later years? Right, well, because of course right. to us it must look like holy cow. You know, he went from having just one of the great directing, stunting, acting yeah. careers of all time yeah. to you know this this horrible crash period in the mid thirties. Well, I think that's where you applied the critic's eye is that you you know reading into what you were seeing as his reaction to his predicament professionally. Right. I mean, a very tough thing when you're writing about him, too, is he never revealed anything about himself. Right. So, like, when he's in that clown outfit in that musical... It, like just the lobby card from that thing is painful. horrendous. So painful. I mean, that was the most painful part of the book to research. And to tell you the truth, I put it off forever. I mean, it took me so long to get to watching those movies because I was afraid to watch them. The ones that were really, you know, the MGM talkies that were really made in his dark period. Right. The late ones where you can sort of see his alcoholism and his deterioration on screen. I knew that I was going to be very upset and um, and almost uh, turned off my path by them. Well, what is, like, so you've been a, a film critic for how long? Uh, at Slate for 15 years or so. And is that when it started for you? I mean, is that... Yes, did, that's the only place I've been a film critic, so I don't know why I say at Slate. But, but was this something when you were, like, did you go to school for it? Oh, no, no, not at all. I was a, a student in literature. And uh, in the beginning of the book, the intro chronicles that a little bit, that I was studying literature and um, and studying abroad when I got interested in Keaton, because the French love him so much, and there had been this incredible film festival So wait, so together. where'd you go to college? At this point, I was at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Okay, so you you go abroad just to study? Uh, yeah, I went abroad because the professor that was my thesis advisor was there, and okay. because yeah, I mean, so at this the is time, graduate school. It was grad school, yeah. And what are you doing your thesis on? Uh, I was writing my thesis on Fernando Pessoa, this Portuguese poet, yeah. who would be very up your alley, actually. Yeah. I think because he was um he just had a he had a wild life story himself, oh, yeah? and was someone who published basically nothing during his life. And after he died, this huge trunk was found with twenty seven thousand pieces of paper in it that were the fragments of you know everything he'd written in his life. Really, and uh, he, oh, he's a whole other story. You should do a whole when's podcast that, on him. And he wrote under various personas, and they all critiqued each other <laughs> and wrote letters to each other. He had over seventy pseudonyms. He was an incredible. Figure. Wow. How yeah. long was your thesis? Uh, it was about the same length as this book. It was 400 about pages? A little bit less, maybe 350, 375. Where's that book? Uh, I don't think anybody wants to read that book, but that wasn't a way my first book, right? I mean, it was only five people ever got to read it or wanted to read it, but. So were you a, a film person? Oh, yeah. I was always a cinephile. And, you know, throughout grad school, I would. I would take classes on film or, or teach film sometimes in, really? the, in the classes I was teaching, you know, as a grad student instructor. Like, where'd you, did you do undergrad at Berkeley? No, I went to Vassar as an undergraduate. Vassar. So, Which has a great film society. Okay, so you say you're studying abroad and Keaton's big in France, but when did you, when were you really struck 
by Buster Keaton. That well, it was that year. It was I was already twenty nine, so this is not like I was a young, you know, it's not so an you'd adolescent. Seen all the movies. No, I mean, I, I grew up, as as you did, I think, in an era when, well, there wasn't anything streaming, first of all, right? Because sure. there wasn't the internet. But also, at least where I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, there were not, it was not easy to oh, see silent movies, you San know? Antonio. I mean, the local stations wouldn't run them. I know some people who say, oh, I grew up and there would be, you know, silent favorites on Sunday sure, afternoon movies on TV. Sure, or they had the on one TV. house, that, the one film, the, the one theater that did it occasionally. Right. Yeah. I mean, once in a while, you could maybe see something on screen right. or, or weird but, but I think to think I, about that yeah. you, you couldn't have access. So recently. Right? There's I no mean, access to right. any of this stuff. Right. So the fact that there was this film festival in this little French town where I was studying, well, not little, Strasbourg, France, is not a huge town, um, but they had this great Cinematheque, state subsidized. I feel like I need to say that because yeah. it's something France has that we don't, right? right. Which is like cultural support from the government. <laughs> yeah, for the arts. And, uh, and they curated this amazing Keaton Festival. Right. And of course I knew who he was, but I think honestly I probably had him vaguely confused at the time with like Harold Lloyd and other silent comedians that weren't Chaplin. Uh-huh. And you know, now to this day when I tell people I'm writing this book, people will say, oh, Keaton, I love the scene where he eats his own boot, which yeah. is Chaplin, How of course. How could you mistake those Or, two? you know, when he hangs off the building, Harold Lloyd. And then there's the other guy. I mix up Harold Lloyd and the other guy. Harry Langdon. Who, he, was, who, he had sort of a childlike did, persona. Who did the freshman? That's Harold Lloyd. Oh, okay, okay. And yeah. Harold Lloyd was hanging off the clock. He's the guy who hangs off yes. the clock in Safety yeah. Last, right. But, I mean, my point is just, and I think I was in this boat, too, that even yeah. cinephiles sort of sure. picture it as, oh, it's this vague black and white period with these guys running around, scurrying around, being funny. So but the, they're so distinct, of Right, course. the propaganda of talkies ruined our appreciation of the history of silent film. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was really, and I think I try to chronicle this in the book, the arrival yeah. of talkies was just this, like, nuke in the film industry you know it just it destroyed so many careers and it changed the way movies were made so profoundly right so when you first experience keaton what what is it about him because like you know to write a book like this after this long of having the first experience of keaton so long ago it has there must have been some thread of mild obsession with this particular guy yeah. i mean i understand that what you're doing is you're kind of seeing the history of the beginning of modern film a film period really just like what 20 years out of any sort of film becomes you know this uh you saw him as a, a as a a a lens through which to see the entire history of culture it's sort of a cultural crit thing right but what made it what locked you in so hard to this guy that's that's such a great question i mean i all i know is that i remember at that festival when i was seeing all these movies being screened and they showed basically everything all yeah, of the yeah, silence the yeah. shorts the features everything they showed it several times yeah. so you could go back and he just seemed like this this creature from another world. Like, who? what the hell? How can this person exist, right? I mean, when you see the things that he does with his body in that period, in right. his prime, right? I mean, yeah. not just that he can physically carry them off, but that he could conceive of them in the first place. Right. You know, some of yeah. these stunts and these huge large-scale gags like the train work in the yeah, general, right? right? I mean, it goes way beyond this guy is a great performer or entertainer, which he was and had been since age five, and we should talk about his childhood at some point, but it's, it's more that he masterminded the entire thing yeah and i think that's i I think that's something that you know one thing i i have been dealing with lately and 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 realizing about just appreciation in general or or historical context is that it's all sort of lost now that that you know the world in which you know real film criticism uh is sort of drove anything in the culture is sort of waning in a way and it's disturbing you know it was so important even when i was in college but it was it, already then the the age of the great film critics seemed to be kind of drifting a little right. bit right it was right? kind of like the late kale years or something right like exactly that. you know and 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 then to that we just sort of i don't even know if we take it for granted or or just see it as artifacts but for you to kind of 
uh, you know, breathe life into, you, you know, the device and, and the, the sort of humanity of Buster Keaton as an artist is, is kind of a, an amazing thing because I, as I was looking at the book, even seeing pictures of, of Mabel, uh, what, uh, Mabel Norman. Yeah. At the camera, there's one picture in there. Yeah. I love and that photo. Yeah. But it's like, you really see like a, a young woman. It's not for some reason that picture in, in, in light of like, you know, all these other things you see of stills of people from the silent era, they, they don't seem real and they seem sort of ageless. But for some reason, that picture, because she's smiling, I'm like, oh, this is just uh, an artist in her 20s doing <laughs> right, a thing. Right. I was so happy to find that photo. And I found one of Roscoe Arbuckle as well. Who yeah, was, I saw he was that first too. collaborator on film where he's behind a camera, you know, and he's not in costume. Unlike, I think Mabel is in costume in that picture. She was probably running to get in front of the camera right after she framed her shot. Right. Right. Um, and Roscoe isn't. He's just in his street clothes and he's behind the camera. And I liked seeing them at work like that. Right. And you to know? think that they're in their 20s. They're in their 20s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's incredible that that whole generation and that's kind of the generation I'm trying to chronicle along with Keaton. But people born in the 1890s, you know, they really grew up along with film. Right. The first film is projected in 1895. So the the medium is discovering what it can do in their hands. Yeah. And it's it's just had this tremendous shift around them. And you made a point in the book to say, like, it's not the same as like the Internet. It's not the same as the shift to streaming or whatever, because that was like this weird, slow evolution. Like what was going on in the early 1900s on almost all levels socially was right. just like it was um, cataclysmic. Right. And technologically too. Yeah. Crazy. And we think of our time, I mean, not incorrectly, but we think of our time as this time of, you know, unprecedented movement in motion and all that. But honestly, compared to the first quarter of the 20th century, I mean, it's it's pokey around yeah, be, here. Yeah. Because the devices like were so like they changed. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the advent of streaming and these phones and, and content and everything else, it does shift our, our sense of time. But then it's shifted the entire pace and, and structure of culture in a way. I guess it sort of still does, but not as dramatically. Yeah, I guess part of the point that I was trying to make in you know bringing us up to the modern day is that now we're so steeped in that, in moving images, right? It's all we can do. We can't escape them. Like they're in your pocket, they're in your hand. You know, you can film yourself, you can edit yourself. Everything is conceived of as if They've it were a movie. hijacked reality. Right, right. And that started, that process of hijacking started, you know, right around that time. I mean, in that same year that well, he was born. Well, that was, in, it's also like, to me, like kind of confronting the idea that our lives, as we live them, uh, are slow and kind of, you know, not that interesting. But most of us spend so much of our life engaging with the phone that it takes on this this sort of frenetic a reaction that it's actually a life we're living where it's not. Right. No, that's a good way of phrasing it. It's like we're editing our lives <laughs> it, to make them more interesting as we're weird. living them for we, other people. Right. And we, and, but also just reacting to things that have nothing really, that our brain is sort of like, oh my God. It's like an old Bill Hicks, Hicks joke where he's, he's watching CNN and it's like war and famine and like, does he, like the, there's just this cacophony of stuff going on. And then he opens his door and it's like crickets, you know, anyway. I thought it was great that in in sort of building this portrait of of Buster that the 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 sort of uh, the vaudevillian element that he was this vaudevillian star and the star of his family's vaudevillian act that you I think you really captured what I know as a comic to be something that I think gets lost in film is that there's there's like blood and sweat and you know weirdness to stage acts that there's a visceral quality to uh, to the idea that you know he's being thrown around as a child by his dad and just all the other actors in the backstage scene that like the, there's a humanness to all that 
that I think you really capture well. That's really at the core of his, that builds him into the, the performer that he is. Yeah, that was an incredibly fun part of the book to research. Yeah. In fact, it was so much fun. It was hard to get out of his childhood. Yeah. You know, there was always some other path I wanted to go down. And I found myself thinking, maybe I should just limit this and just tell the publisher, no, I'm only writing about his childhood before he entered films. Because it's a thing that even if you're a huge fan of his movies, you might not fully realize. And I think it tends to get not glossed over, but like treated quickly yeah, in biographies really know of him. It. Yeah. And even when I watched Bogdanovich's documentary... He, he does it, but not much. Right. Like you could spend so much time looking into that period and it's tough. To, it would be tough to do in a documentary because there are so few. I mean, there's only still images that survive. The, the, the act, the Three Keatons was never filmed like most vaudeville acts were never but, filmed. But, but what you captured was that this was the entertainment. This was the format. This was the form that America was entertained by. Was it you know, just rogues and traveling, you know, acts that showed up everywhere. And there were hundreds, maybe thousands of them of all different kinds that would tour and just show up on bills in, in cities, small cities small towns but it was just it was commonplace you would go and see some weird family of jugglers or flamethrowers or acrobats and then you know someone singing to something it it was just the way that uh that entertainment worked right no every single bill you look at you know when you look at the old playbills from from slates that they would appear on at these you know these in the through the vaudeville circuit every single one just has incredible other acts with them where it's like so and so and his talking monkeys and professor this and that and the you know the robot that shoots at targets or whatever or the the one act that had a seal that you talked yeah, about. Yeah, that, exactly. That there was an underwater act seal, right. that, that traveled with a tank <laughs> and filled it with water and they had a seal. And I, all I could think of is like, could you imagine traveling with a seal? <laughs> and the tank, to, how heavy it would Trying be. to keep a, a seal happy? <laughs> On a train, right? right. It's crazy <laughs> that, that this was a, the life that these people led. And it was a much more interesting and exciting life and more, vis- uh, I don't keep wanting to use that word visceral, but you know, the kind of like, I mean, to, to how engaged you've got to be to to live in that world. I think that's what I'm responding to when I say that we live, you know, that we live in these images now, or we live in these phones, or we're reacting to things that aren't immediately in our life. To live the life of a vaudevillian, or even to live in a life that wasn't mediated in any way, was so much more engaging. It would seem. I mean, it's it's very easy to to romanticize that period because yeah. it is super super fun to read about. But um, no, it's, it's disgusting. But 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 as I also try to cover in that early part of the book, I mean, Buster Keaton's childhood was both. You know, it sort of sounds enviably fun in so many ways, yeah. but it also, you know, he never got to go to school. He, you know, essentially worked and supported his entire family from when he was five years old. I mean, what happened in his family that was remarkable is that he's born into a performing family, but yeah. not a successful performing family. You know, his parents were on the verge of, you know, starvation practically. I mean, maybe that's pushing it, but they were barely getting by, yeah. right, in his very early childhood. Yeah. And, uh, and when he joined them on stage, which he did for the first time, it's hard to say exactly, but it was probably when he had just turned five. Um, so he's five years old, and they've got him in this getup, him and his dad, right? Right, they have the matching, yeah, matching sort of ethnic costumes, like yeah. Irishman costumes of the time. And his dad just kind of tosses them around. Yeah, it seems like their act evolved from something they did anyway as father yeah. and child, you know, just that they had this kind of roughhousing relationship offstage, and they very quickly developed that into this incredibly successful act. That's the crazy thing to watch if you sort of clock, yeah. you know, reviews and, and press about them from the time, yeah. is that, you know, he he goes from uh, little Buster is assisting in his parents' act to six months later, the star of the Keaton combination, you know, and and word about him has sort of traveled from coast to coast. So he was like a child prodigy performer that was incredibly successful on the stage for 17 years, you know, until right. he was 21 but, uh, years old. But all of it revolved around, <clears throat> most of it revolved around him reacting to his drunk father. Right. That, that, that it was this sort of heightened uh, uh, faux abusive dynamic. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's a huge question in, in looking at his childhood is like, was he an abused child or not, right? Well, I, I mean, like that what, in, the fir- in how you sort of integrate in the cultural and uh, sort of uh, political history of the time that that, you know, that in New York at that time, that guy, Jerry... Right. Right. Oh. Who was, you know, trying, there was a progressive movement. Right. To, you know, get kids out of sweatshops and protect kids of immigrant families who were just using them to, you know, make money any way right. they could. Right. Right. I mean, it was the sort of the child protection movement right. you're talking about, right? Which also grew up along with Buster who the hell and was just a little older than him. The, the, the idea that, at the, that there was a time in this country where it was just a sort of free for all. Sure, use your kid in the mill. Who cares? Right. There was no compulsory child education. And, you know, there were certainly no laws about child abuse until there just started to be about the generation before Keaton came along, but he didn't benefit from any of that. You right, know? because like his dad dodged it. The, the, the approach to that guy right. in those rules was like, you know, he's he, it's meddling. Right, you right. Know, we can take care of this kid. But he's the breadwinner of the whole thing. Right. And But that is actually a big question about those changes that were brought by the progressive kind of movement to, to, to reform childhood, yeah. right, or to reform the way childhood was treated, is that, you know, obviously it ended up being a great thing for right. for most children and for, for culture as a whole. You know, but but there was a sense also that there was a, a meddling kind of... Um, uh, the there state. Was a, yeah, there was a, a nanny state kind of quality to it that lots of people, especially working class people, you know, which Keaton's family essentially was, even though they became successful in vaudeville, that they would... They resisted and his whole life i mean he, he had one day of school at yeah. least according to the way he told the story yeah. his parents put him in public school for read? one day but he was on the road constantly he Could had he no read? home uh, you know, that's that's actually a, a, a rumor about him that somehow got started because one of his biographers speculated there's almost no writing in his hand. Yeah. There's one little piece of a scrap of paper he signed that you can see in an archive, but he didn't write letters. He was not a word guy at yeah. all. And he said that about himself. But yeah, he could read. I think. I mean, yeah, certainly he read the book that the general was based on that his, yeah. his co-director gave him. You know, I think that that's that's somewhat of someone a taught him to read. That's somewhat of a classist rumor to circulate about someone well, like no, you can learn to read without though? going to school. Sure. But you know? someone's got to teach you to read. And if that's not if you. Like you, you would want the source of that because it doesn't matter. But in the book, you know, you can sort of track where he learned certain things in, in the right. chapter on on minstrelsy and race. Right. That you know he was all constantly around you know blackface performers, right. so he was able to glean right those behaviors. But you know, nowhere is there sort of like. And then this guy sat down and taught Buster how to read <laughs> right. on a train. Right. I mean, presumably he did learn on the train, like he did most things on the train as a kid, either from his parents or from somebody who who taught him. On but the and also, you brought up but what's that guy's name? Jacob Rice, the photographer. Is it Reese? Jacob or Rice? Reese. I think you Jacob said Jacob Reese. Reese. Yeah. yeah. Like you know that because I, I studied those photographs when I you know I took a history of photography thing where you know though all oh, there was a lot of things that kind of led to this these rules around kids. But the the idea that some parents are like, what, I had to work? Let the kid work at seven. <laughs> right. It's okay that she's at a sewing machine. Right. I mean, and it is. It, I think in, in the case of Keaton, you know, his problem had less to do with the fact that he wasn't in school and wasn't doing all these, you know, things that kids in the 20th century were starting to be supposed to do, but just that he had an abusive father, you know, who was not abusive his whole childhood, who seems to have gone through a period when he was an adolescent of particularly getting, you know, drinking too much and getting violent. Um, but yeah, I mean, he had the act on stage was violent and their relationship off stage was violent as well. And, and I had, think that the that violence was enacted on the stage. So it must have been not just funny to audiences, but you know, frightening sometimes yeah. and thrilling, you know, thrilling yeah. in a gasp. Like, what's going to happen? Is, is kind this of real? Way. Right. 
Yeah, because like he was constantly outsmarting his father on stage. And getting like thrown across the stage, thrown into the backdrop. Once he was aimed at a pair of audience members who were heckling Buster's mother for her saxophone playing <laughs> because she would stand at the front of the stage and play sax. That was kind of part of the gag yeah. know, while this violence was going on behind her. God, and somebody like said something negative. Performance art. And, and, and Buster's dad gets furious and hurls yeah. his son, who was probably eight or ten at that point. So he weighed a good deal, you know, into these two hecklers and well, broke their rib, broke one of their noses. Really? <laughs> You talk about how they like they made the little harness, the handle for right, the kid. Right, sewed a suitcase handle onto his jacket. And, he, and also that detail of the father traveling with this table. Mm-hmm. That like you, you know that it was just a table that <laughs> which was a prop that was needed for I guess many bits. Right. Well, before before Buster came along, that was sort of the his the act was actually billed sometimes as the man with the table, Joe Keaton, because yeah, he had I mean he was I think an acrobat. You know, yeah. he was probably not a particularly distinguished acrobat, but his son thought he was funny, and uh, and he um you know would do various tricks with this table, like jump onto it, jump off of it. I don't know what all he did. Well, and also like through you know like through that chapter about you know. Uh, seeing how these child protection laws were sort of created and evaded and why there was a, a, a sort of pushback on it. Then you kind of move from there, like the the beginning of film was sort of a novelty. You know, I kind of knew that, that, that it was not about making movies. It was about, look at this interesting machine right. that can project these cool things. Right. And you talk about how... Uh, and I didn't I didn't know this history specifically. And maybe I had learned it once before that, you know, these early sort of cinema texts were almost were like storefronts or people's houses where it's sort of like they've got one of those machines down there. So right. that, that was the attraction. Yeah. In fact, the, the, often in, in on vaudeville bills, like the ones that the Three Keatons would appear on, there would be some kind of, you know, c- cinematic portion of the program. And it would usually be billed in the early years, like by the name of the machine. Yeah, you know, like right. it's, it's the and they all had different brand names. Like yeah. it's the I can't remember what they all were. The, the cinematograph or the. But was it was the, the Lumiere brothers that did the first movies? Uh, the cinematograph was their machine. Yeah. Okay. And then Edison invented his own machine that had a different name. Yeah. I mean, the, you, it's really hard to, to trace the exact genealogy of movies because they were happening from so many places at once. But the Lumiere brothers, as I start off the book with, were the first to project, publicly project movies, you know, onto a screen as opposed to, I mean, there were those, um, you know, machines I remember that you those. could peer they're, they're, into and wind. Yeah, Benny Levine's shoe store in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, where my grandmother lived, he had one of those. Those old windy machines? The winding machines that flip the cards yes, so you yes. get motion. Yeah, I forget what they were called, but I used to love it. You could just go back there and just do a whole little thing. It was kind of fascinating. I don't think I've ever seen one of those. In you haven't? Not, I've not done, never done the winding. I have to oh. try it. So, Okay. So when film comes out, it's sort of this novelty. But who was so? Did Edison do the train coming, or was that Lumiere? Yeah. That was a Lumiere film. Yeah, not shown in eighteen ninety five, but a little later. What were some of Edison's films? Um, I mean, I think The Kiss was an Edison oh, film. Okay. You know yeah, that yeah, famous yeah. one, yeah, yeah, The yeah. Sneeze, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't look as much at Edison stuff, but I mean, the early American movies were basically attributed to Edison, although he was in no sense their director, and he didn't really even invent the machine they were made on. Yeah. It was more like he he branded it, you know, yeah. because he was such a famous inventor. Now, throughout your life, I mean, outside of put it, pulling this book together, were you somebody that would seek out and watch silent films? I became that over, you know, the 20 years or so that passed between that f- film festival I described and, and starting to write this book. In Strasbourg. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to say that that's sort of the beginning of my Keaton obsession, that was 1996. And in the years since then, you know, I finished my degree and I started writing It's Late and I did all kinds of things in life. But that kind of became a hobby of mine, you know, to just read more about that period and just the more I would I would learn about it, the more I would want to learn about well, because it. Because so. you're able to track through that period also like the sort of evolving narratives that became you know popular in commercialized film and some of them sort of still exist somehow. There's one beat in the book at some point 
where you said that they were using uh, the cameraman as a template for MGM comedies long after you know Buster was kind of pushed out or or drank himself out or whatever. Right, right. That you you know that there are these templates, and the same with Grand Hotel. Even though the, I'm jumping way ahead, that these sort of multi-star vehicles became templates of corporate movie making, and they they exist now. Right. And the, and and the and that the sort of like strange kind of weird unrequited romances that were driving the slapstick of Buster Keaton, you know, they still kind of exist, right? Yeah, I wonder where slapstick is now. That was something I wanted to ask you because you talk to comedians so much and you know much more about the world of comedy. But, you know, where is slapstick now? I mean, where do you see or or Keaton's influence in in film or comedy now? I don't know. You You know, Bogdanovich was able to talk to a lot of people about, you know, certain actors. Like, I guess everybody after a certain point, you know, has to pay lip service either earnestly or not to, you know, these these heroes of the silent age or, or earlier, you know, whether it's the Marx Brothers or what. But like, I'll tell you, honestly, after reading your book and watching Bogdanovich, I am able to see, you know, who sort of, you know, grew from that, from Chaplin and from Keaton, that there's a physicality that was integrated. But Slapstick, I don't know where Slapstick is. There were guys that were doing the Farrelly brothers, I think, were probably the most modern practitioners of flat out Slapstick. Right. Right. Because they seem to love it. But there are moments that people have. Physical comedy is is sort of a, a guilty pleasure of mine because there's very very few people that do it well. But you know, people like Will Ferrell and even like Ben Stiller, I think at his you know comedic best is a hilarious physical comedian. It's just not something you see that often. And it's not being up, written for, you know. I guess, but it's also this gift that that very few people have total control over. You know, like like somebody like Will Ferrell, like he knows how to just turn that thing on. And and it's uniquely his, but it's definitely physical comedy, you know? And there's stand-ups that do it as well that I, I think are great at. They can't help it, which I think is something, you know, you sort of describe about Keaton. By the time he gets around to motion pictures, he, you know, he can't help but be funny. And he's so adept at it in his bones that it, it just exudes out of him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was part of why I wanted to spend so much time on his childhood is that I just feel like you can't understand the comedian he came in his physicality without realizing that he was this person who was thrown around on a stage and basically forced to learn how to fall in order to survive you know, right. from his very early childhood. And also to me, this is fascinating that he is this person who, you know, became this kind of pillar of American show business for, you know, yeah. 70 years of his life without ever choosing to go into show business. I mean, right. he was just born into it. Yeah. He once said in an interview later in his life that if he had been educated, he would have wanted to be a civil engineer, which right. he would have been great at, right? Sure. Building bridges and things like that. But we would have missed out on so many laughs. So it's good it didn't happen. Right. But also, you know, I don't know that, you know, it's hard. It's easy to sort of backload that stuff when people are asking you questions when you're in your 50s. But I mean, you know, the compulsive nature of somebody that you know ultimately becomes an alcoholic or is an alcoholic and the this sort of uh, you know death-defying business of 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 adrenaline junkies, you know, is you know I don't know that he ever would have become a civil engineer because he had this kind of you know addiction right. to 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 the thrill of timing and the thrill of literally death-defying. Yeah, stunts. it wouldn't have been dangerous enough. You're right. He could have no. he could have done it if he was actually standing on the bridge, you know, while it was being constructed. But I also think the construction of his personality in you know in defiance of his father's abuse and and in sort of uh, you know getting comfortable with the type of insanity and chaos and sort of standing strong and solemn and and in almost expressionless in the face of it that became his sort of comedic uh, uh, brand. You know, I think you described really well as how that evolved. And then, you know, you searching for emotion throughout the entire book in his face is kind of right. s- sweet. 
I mean, he's just someone, right? I think the fascination with him in part is is that expressionlessness and the fact that he's someone that you want to know and you want to understand and you know you're not going to be able to. You know, it's a thing that apparently his sister, his own sister, who lived with him for many years, even in adulthood, said about him, which was that you never knew what he was thinking. You know, that he had this kind of impassive. Also in photographs, you know, he had a sort of shtick where there's a few candidates of him smiling here and there. There's one in the book, but mostly... If a camera was on him still or moving, he assumed that mask-like expression. You know, it was part of his persona. So at the, you know, at the beginning of show business, you know, it was interesting for me to sort of put, see all, all this history put together around, you know, the silent comedies. That there were really only a couple places that did them. They were very specific. They were insane. Right. It was a uh, uh, Senate. Right. His studio. Right. Roach. Right. right. And uh, and Schenk. Is that is it Shunk? Joe Skink? Shunk. Yeah. Skink. 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 Yeah. Louis B. Mayer called him Skunk because skunk. he couldn't stand him. But these were the, the people generating comedy on the backs of only a handful of, of comedic performers and a, a large cast of people that would run around. And right. I mean, that all shifted, too, during Keaton's lifespan. And it's something else that I try to track is that is that film went from being, I mean, as you said, in the very early days, just something that was kind of shown for fun during yeah. the vaudeville bill to this growing business. And that's the period when Keaton enters it, when a lot of times an individual performer like Arbuckle, who Keaton started with, or Mabel Norman, this happened for her too, would have their their own production company, right? That would be financed by somebody like Joe Skank, who was really a producer or... Um, or it's so funny because this is what independent film is now. The financing's different. Right. But ultimately, a lot of these people that get a little traction, I would say most actors that have made a little money have production companies. Right. Uh, you know, but I don't know that they necessarily produce movies all the time. But yeah, but they don't do. have, I don't I, get, I don't think that they have, most of them anyway, exactly what Keaton had, which was that they had their own, and Chaplin had this too, and on a much larger scale, which is that they have their own lot and their own dedicated crew, you know, so right, there's like a cameraman right. sitting around waiting to make your movie. Like, that's something that disappeared. I think there were more lots around. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Like you, you may have a company, but you're still hustling to find space to film and people to film with, right? right. And you're recreating each project each time. And I think also, Whereas he had a dedicated crew that just sat there through the 20s, and then suddenly, as I said, with the coming of sound, all of that disappeared, and nobody had that except if you were Chaplin or somebody who was so wealthy from you know incredible success that you could you could hang on to that individual studio and hang on to your money. Right, which yeah. Chaplin was much smarter about. I mean, Keaton was yeah. a terrible businessman, and it's a tragic thing when you read his, his his history to watch, see all the moments that he could have made better choices. I mean, obviously with drinking, but even with business decisions. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's that comes with the territory of, of sort of having an abusive father that you're just going to, you know, kind of suck it up and be a doormat guy. Yeah, he was a very <laughs> passive person in his personal life and in his business life, you know. But let's get you know, moving through, like, how how film evolved along with him was that, like, I didn't really realize that there was such a huge span of time between, you know, comedic shorts and actual features. Like, the entire business was shorts. Right, yeah, because the idea was that they were sort of almost like the cartoon that you would watch before the movie, and they filled an important bill like that, right, yeah. so that you could have this whole program for the evening. So even Chaplin didn't wasn't making short comedy, I mean, long, long feature-length comedies, I mean, until... Uh, when did he get started? I don't know the exact year, but, you know, it was, I don't know, 1919, yeah. 1920, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. Because where the money was and where, what people wanted to see from funny guys were these little 20 minute shorts, which still are some of Keaton's best work. I mean, people don't screen them as much, but like, they're all fantastic. Like one week. Yeah. One week, huge. which I have a whole chapter Every, about. In the yeah, book. Everybody. I mean, I think one week is one of the greatest American comedies. Like, yeah. what, what's wrong with that movie? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's wrong with it. And it's still kind of amazing. 
to yeah, watch yeah. the and device it, of it. And everybody gets it. I mean, I've shown that movie to, you know, people in their 80s and to my child when she was six. You know, right. they all laughed at it. Well, I think that a lot of people look for that. And I think a lot of times, like, there's something at being a, a sophisticated adult that once you start feeling the entire movie business gearing itself to appeal to five-year-olds and 70-year-olds, uh, it becomes sort of uh, uh, annoying. But, but I mean, with slapstick shorts, uh, you can accept it. Right. As opposed to the entire movie I mean, they're business. timeless in a different way. There's like It's like sure. ca- cave art or something. Like, no, that's, that's just going to live forever as long that's as you can true, right. show it. And I think that, like, uh, in talking about really establishing Keaton as, as a genius of film, and it, I thought it was very interesting in the book as well that you were able to kind of uh, create some parallel between all the working artists at the time when he was starting to enter his most prolific period of independent creation, you were able to talk about the writers, the painters, everybody who was sort of functioning right. at that time. They, he probably had no idea who they were, but they were all drawing from the same sort of shift in reality uh, that was going on. And well, I guess, would that be the industrial or post-industrial? What what period are we really talking about I don't know. Like, there's different growth? ways of naming it, right? I mean, when you talk about the people who were his contemporaries, yeah. it's you, it would be called the lost generation, you know, but which was it? originally, I think, Gertrude Stein's phrase. But, you know, just... Just somebody who was sort of born in the late 19th century and lives into the first, you know, is a young person in the first quarter of the 20th century. That's there's just so many artists in that pack. All you of know? them it's were starting, like all the artists. Many of the artists that grew to define, you know, modern painting, modern literature, you know, modern, you know, uh, theater. It was all happening then, right. right? Well, F. Scott Fitzgerald is somebody who comes up in the book. There's a whole chapter about Later, him and yeah, Keaton. Yeah, even though there's no evidence that they ever met, they both worked for MGM at the same time on the decline. Yeah, and they both were almost exactly the same. Age. I think they were a year apart in age only, and both had this very similar trajectory, right, of being extremely successful in very early at a very early age. They both hit it big in 1920, basically for yeah. the first time. I mean, for film and Keaton, he's yeah. already been doing stage, and they both kind of hit the skids at the same time, you know, and then kind of scraped their way back. And after scraping their way back, both found themselves working behind the scenes at MGM. This was Keaton's second period at MGM after he'd already been, as you said, fired from being, you know, their their star comedian. And so there's a chapter that's essentially just sort of speculative. Like what? What was it like? Did F. Scott Fitzgerald ever sit in the commissary next to Buster Keaton? That that question just fascinated. Well, me. yeah, but also like you know that you were able to draw the connection between y- y- you know his experience at MGM to sort of fill in some of the blanks around what Keaton must have been living through with Irving Thalberg and who that guy was because of you know, passages from The Last Tycoon. Right, yeah. And I, I hadn't sort of realized, I'd read The Last Tycoon, you know, in my another obsession period with yeah. Gerald. It didn't go as deep. But I hadn't really known about Thalberg when I did, you know. And, and I certainly had not sort of realized that... that Keaton and Fitzgerald were crossing paths at that point. So suddenly the Lost Tycoon became this treasure trove because it's all about MGM at that exact period, you know, that second period when Keaton would have been there. So you really get a sense. It's a wonderful book, too. But you just really get a sense of how that machine, that studio filmmaking machine in the early sound days was working. And how it was created. Right, you know, right. and how and what it did to talent. I mean, that yeah, was and how like, much violence there was behind its creation. And Keaton was one of the victims of that violence, and so was Fitzgerald in a way. Well, yeah, and also just this sort of diminishment and and sort of infantilizing uh, with money and and fame of artists. Do you, you know, like all these actors, and and the, it was just like they, you know, if they could make money, fine. If they couldn't, we'll throw them somewhere else and put them in something else. But there was this kind of. 
and it still exists today, and it's always a grosser, uh, a, a disappointing and horrific part of the business is that, you, you know, that thing that Mayer says about, you, you know, if you give them awards, they'll do whatever you want. <laughs> right, right. That, he created that, the Oscars for that reason. Right, basically. just to, to placate, you know, the egos of, of creatives uh, to keep them doing things for him that were that shallow in, in that way that he knew how to exploit talent and, and just use us for as you know, pawns in the big game, you know. Right. I mean, that's that that way of conceiving of, you know, filmmaking and the the studio system as this machine or factory yeah. farm or whatever is is really contemporaneous with that exact moment, you know, that Keaton found himself at MGM. So, I mean, it was really that was really bad historical timing. He'd had so much historical luck in his life where he kept hitting things at the peak, you know, like vaudeville at the peak of vaudeville and then the golden age but, of silent film. But I think but he really hit the skids and had a horrible streak of luck there in the 30s. I guess it was a streak of luck. But the, I mean, the bigger crime to me seems that that once talkies happened that there was a complete sort of um, uh, erasure or diminishment of, of any of that success. Like a, a vaudeville success didn't, it eventually didn't matter. And, and of really putting him into the pantheon of great filmmakers, that didn't matter either. Right, right. Because like the actual, like once film becomes, and always was such a business that no one was really talking about the art of film. So it was always relatively disposable and constantly progressing and moving forward. So that shit just represented the past on some level. Yeah, that's why so much of it is lost. You know, I mean, right. it's something like 75 to 80 percent of silent films that were ever made are now gone forever, you know, because they just weren't there was no value to them. I mean, the celluloid that they were printed on was more valuable than the images. But on I it. think like, you know, using like if you really start because I think in my recollection of how Manvel, uh, even in some other critics, maybe the French contextualized. Keaton was that, you know, he was a predecessor to the Surrealists and mm-hmm. he was, uh, you know, a predecessor to that kind of absurd, uh, right. you know, Dadaism and absurd theater and all of that stuff that that his genius, whether he knew it or not, and he was totally unaffected uh, through his you know compulsive construction of stunts and devices and everything else was something uniquely creative and 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 and, and a real sort of heightened bit of art. You know, like not unlike whatever the hell Gertrude Stein was doing with with writing. Right. It was similar. You right. Know? And I'm not for, I'm not saying that in a condescending way. I'm just not familiar with it. But I know she was deconstructing something. Yeah. No, Stein is such a great connection to make. Like I try to talk in the book about how Keaton is really a modernist artist without right. realizing that he was. Right. I mean, he's the, be the last person to classify him as any himself as any sort of artist. And in fact, he didn't even like to be called an artist. But he just seems so contemporaneous with Stein or Fitzgerald or Hemingway and literature writer Virginia Woolf or James Joyce, all right. these people that were writing new stuff and reinventing the medium as they were Consciously. writing it. Yeah, who were sort of and, and, who, and, thinking through what a book was as they're writing a book. I feel sure. like Keaton is constantly doing that, but he did, he's doing it instinctually. He's you know? pure. I mean, it's 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 weird to conceive of any artist as that, but if any artist is, it seems to me like well, he yeah, is. because like because there was no context to there was nothing established, you know, saying that film was an art. Right. So you know, there was nothing to to sort of like you know turn on its head. Right. Whereas you got people like the literary crowd who were you know who were fighting the old models, who were actually pushing back against the history of literature, which was already a heightened art, but film was like half garbage to these people. Right. Right. So half of the the, the work that film had to do was also kind of getting onto the cultural radar which you, know, you talk which, about like right. you know, how do you shift from theater to film how do you get the middle class to like you know it was almost like it reminded me of those scenes of those the the sort of lower theater productions like in amadeus and stuff there was definitely a theater you know situation for people to throw things at right and, you know that seemed to be what film represented right like it was just like the rabble 
Yeah, there were there were lots of critics who theater critics who refused to see movies, you know, into the teens, you know, the 1910s or so. They were just saying, like, this is beneath me, basically, you know. And for a very different reason, Joe Keaton, Buster's dad, hated film because it was going to come eat his lunch and he knew it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I thought that was interesting that, you know, in, in the face of that, that these critics, you know, not until I guess that guy Sherwood. What's his name? Robert, Robert Sherwood, Sherwood. That, you know, they were not able to see that there was something going on. In, in the actual uh, format that, you know, that people like Keaton who were, you know, ha- you know, you know uh, sort of like, uh, you know, hiding half the lens so they could do effects. Right, that, right. They, they, they were figuring out all these different ways to work with the camera to create, you know, new and interesting surreal effects or stunt effects or lighting effects or all that stuff. I guess lighting didn't happen until later, but that none of these critics were able or, or willing to see that, you know, we were dealing with a new medium. That, that had a lot of possibility. Right. I mean, fil- film criticism, right? Obviously, film criticism has to grow up along with film right. as well. And and that's something I try to track some, too. And there wasn't, for example, Variety didn't run a film review. And this is the first American you know, film review, supposedly, until 1909. So that's already you know 15 years almost into the existence of film, right? And then they were just sort of little blurbs. It just t- sort of took a long time for, you know, for thoughtful critics to start doing the kind of things that Robert Sherwood, the longtime critic for life, who I write about, and that who, guy, like, who, I don't who nothing- Crisscrossed with Keaton a lot. Right, he liked Keaton, but I, I had nothing, no idea that guy was a, a, a huge presence. Right. I mean, if you think about the connections, right, that the guy who was the film critic for Life in the 1920s, you know, later becomes, he tried to write Pulitzer a movie Pulitzer Prize for winning playwright. Then he, yeah, then he w- wins four Pulitzer Prizes, three for drama and one for nonfiction. He works with President Roosevelt, you know, as a speech writer, and, uh, and he helps start the Voice of America. Yeah. Um, and he's know. a little hard on Buster, though he liked him. Right. It's like out of all that amazing accomplishment, he's still got to take shots at poor Buster. <laughs> right. <laughs> who he liked. But, well, I mean, but I actually I love that that relationship between them in in that chapter because I feel like he was the kind of critic that Keaton was a filmmaker, which is to say he was kind of inventing the medium as he went along, you know. And right, and he's it's still to, really fun to read now. It's hard to think of a time where like it didn't exist, but like it didn't survive in the same way that tabloidism or this sort of cross pollination of media through the movie industry, you know, into these other magazines and into you know whatever in order to promote their product, right? sort of took over and remains that's what that's what the world we live in now that you know it wasn't the criticism that won it wasn't <laughs> the highbrow that won there's still a few of us out here just sad no, no, no. dinosaurs no i know and i think it's essential but it's hard to find a place in the world that we live in because like the worst of it is sort of won out media wise right yeah i mean it's it's, it's pretty sad that yeah there's so there's so few jobs for people like me right now and then on you know the end that you're closer to the production end i mean you know i really feel like we're we're not in a good place right now for people who want to do the kind of you know wildly creative Invention that and also, there's so much anyone can, I, but we don't have to get into that yet. But let's talk about like you know the evo- the sort of uh, the step from you know comedy shorts to comedy features because you know really when you talk about Keaton and what becomes hammered home in this book and and I think in most sort of uh, you know full assessments of him is this you know these eight or nine features that happened uh, between what his age the age of twenty and thirty or whenever what, right right so that was really the, the masterworks. And he, in doing those, sort of defined, like, he, there was not anyone doing comedy full-length movies 
before him, really, right? Well, I mean, but he sort of started when the whole industry started, I would say. I mean, okay. he wasn't necessarily a pioneer in that respect, right. but he was but Given he was the opportunity, one of the first. he would do it. Right, right. I mean, I think, at, at his, in fact, his first feature, which was called Three Ages, he deliberately made so that it could be chopped into three shorts in case it wasn't successful. And that successful. was the, uh, the satire of Griffith? Yeah, it's a, it's a satire of, of intolerance. intolerance right. right, which got, that must have got some good laughs. <laughs> it's still a good one. I mean, it's one of his weaker features, but it's still really Well, I mean, I just watch. think like the impact of intolerance and, you know, and the problem problems within that thing and that right. you know, there's kind of this like this uh, this idea that Keaton could take the piss out of anything that lofty uh, it's such easy game you know what I mean it's easy fodder for him right I mean he was and he was really was a, a spoofer and a parodist of things of his time which we don't always they're sure. funny on their own so you don't have to get that it's a spoof in order to laugh at it but yeah something like that is spoofing and Griffith even and, like one week you went into detail about that the sort of like build your own house kits yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a moment that he was just seizing, you know, the way an artist does, like a magpie, just yeah. seizing something from the culture, which is build it yourself homes, you know, yeah. Sears homes that, and other companies with it would ship out on on a railroad car and you would just get all the boards and the nails and everything in a pattern to right. put it together. And uh, that was this huge phenomenon in this same period we're talking about, just right up through, I guess, about 1925, 30 or uh-huh. so. And uh, he must have seen that happening as sure. a kid, right? Yeah, You're riding the rails yeah. his whole life. Yeah. Just... And so, yeah, he turns it into this great domestic comedy, basically like... Like, what if a couple had to build a house together in one week? Yeah, and you were really, like, it's interesting. There's nuances that, you know, I don't like, you know, I think the benefit of somebody like yourself shedding light on this stuff is it, 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 and for me too, and I guess I've gotten cynical or I've gotten lazy, but, you know, these things are here to be read into and to assess, you know, for you to spend time to really talk about how the ending of that short of one week, which was a comedy short, that there was some hope at the end. Which was not always the case with right, with right. the later Keaton movies. It was a rare thing that there there's a way to look at domestic life in that in that movie as something that can transcend problems. Right. It's a yeah. It's a romantic movie, which was not a thing that he commonly made. You know? Right. But I don't know that me even a relatively smart guy is going to look at that and read into it that much. <laughs> but it's all there. I don't think right. you're making a mistake right. in seeing it But it's it there in the, in the sort of happiness that you feel at the end of the movie. After that great last joke, which I won't spoil, right, of one week. We're, we're not going to spoil Buster Keaton movie? <laughs> like, it's so weird that, like, I wrote something down when I was reading the book. It's like, because now everything gets old very quickly or everything is just always new. I can't figure out what right? it is. You know what I mean? Because as soon as something was released, it's sort of like, when did that come out? Last week. Oh, really? That long ago? Like, But there's still this idea that like everything's always available all the time. So right? you can't, you know, the, literally the idea that there's a moment where we're saying like, well, let's not spoil <laughs> the end of one week. Okay, the I, Buster Keaton film I made realized, in 19... 19- yeah, it's now 101 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's but the, that last joke is too good to spoil. I really do want people to experience it for the right? first time. Yeah, but it was never as great as it was in that very first time. No, I think that's right. The but uh, whereas other jokes that he did, like the famous you know house frame that falls down on him yeah. in Steamboat Bill Jr., were jokes that developed throughout his career. That he the would, first you know, time start he did it was with Arbuckle. With Arbuckle, right? right? And so just this idea that like a, a frame of something would fall on you and you'd be right in the window was an image that he had in his mind for at least ten years and kept kind of growing it and growing it and growing it in scale. Well, that was the interesting thing too about the uh, evolution and the the production of gags and how you create gags that, you know, that, you know, when you're dealing with these bits that require, you know, architecture and, and cranes and timing right. and, and, you know, and massive sets, like, you know, you're building a bridge so an actual train <laughs> it can, 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 can fall into a river. Like, it's, it's crazy. 
Yeah, the lunacy of that shot. You're talking about the shot from the general, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. The, which was the most expensive shot in movies yeah. up to that time, and was in a way. I mean, it was on a long scale, but in a way, that was what started to put him on the path toward losing his independent production company. But the the, the masterpieces. What, what do you consider the masterpieces? Wow, I mean, in a, almost everything he did in the in the twenties <laughs> yeah. would stand for that. I mean, there's just a few a few weaker links in there, but even those have really funny passages and ideas. I mean, yeah. I guess if I were programming a Keaton festival and yeah. I had to choose, I, I think the, the features I would choose would probably be. Uh, I mean, the general, just because that was one of his own favorites of his movies, yeah. is something that is so Keaton, only he could have come up with this idea of the train chase sure, sure. with the trains almost as characters in the movie. Um, the Navigator, which was another movie he cited as his favorite a lot, which um, which is in a way That's the, ship the general on a boat, yeah. right? Except it's just one b- boat. It's not a chase. It's yeah. just about being stranded at sea on this huge yeah. freight. I guess it's a freight ship, you know, but just a gigantic well, I like ship. The, the whole with idea one of that like, was because somebody scouted the, somebody who he was in his crew. Right. Was Billy Bitzer his guy? No, that was that guy. That was, Billy Bitzer worked with Edison, I think. Oh, He's oh, the okay. cameraman for Edison. Yeah, I just know the name. Billy Bitzer. He was a super important early cameraman, but yeah. no, he never worked with Buster. Uh, but like someone realized that there was a, a, a ship up for auction and was oh, like. Oh, no, he worked with Griffith. I'm sorry. Griffith, Bill, right. Bitzer that's right. Right. But like somebody gave it gave Buster the heads up that there was a ship that they were trying to sell. Yes, and that like, was his. Yeah. That was somebody in his crew. And when I talk about you know those years when he had a dedicated crew and lot to himself, I mean yeah. that's something that you have the power to do with that kind of mobility and freedom of a small operation. So right. yeah, Fred Gabori, who was his production designer, who you know designed almost all of these incredible structures yeah. and stunts that you think about in Keaton movies, just happened to be scouting some other location for another movie, not even related, and saw that there was a huge freighter for I believe it was for lease, not for sale, and he just called up Keaton and said, you have to build a movie around this. You and know? he did. And he did. I mean, he took a lot of ideas from his his collaborators. You know, he was not a guy who insisted on hogging credit. In fact, he's not credited as, as the director of almost any of his movies. And he essentially directed them all, you know, with somebody else sort of helping behind the camera. Yeah, I think that like in, in this book that you really humanize some of these people in a way that I, well, maybe I don't read a lot about them, about uh, Arbuckle or about like, you know, the you kind of cleared some of this stuff away from the Arbuckle story. My buddy Jerry Stahl wrote a book called I Fatty years ago. I about, read that. Yeah, it's a good book. And, uh, you know, just that, you know, that that culture of tabloidism, you know, was really built around, you know, that Arbuckle thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and that, later that and a few, other, a few other scandals that happened right at that same time in Hollywood. But, yeah, the Arbuckle trial was a huge part of it in 1921. And it's also interesting that he was vindicated, right? Isn't that the word? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I forget what the word is, but he was, yeah, he was cleared of all charges, acquitted, I guess. Right. After after acquitted. three trials, right? yeah. there were, I think, two hung juries. Right. And then the third time around, he was completely acquitted. Didn't matter. With, you know, an apology statement from the jury saying, you know, this has all been a kangaroo court and, you know, this man has committed no crime. And, uh, but his, his, not only was his Hollywood career over, I mean, he did come back and sort of um, direct some B-movies under a pseudonym, but, you know, in front of the camera, his career was basically over. But as a result of that, also, eventually, the production code kind of went into went into effect. You know, it was because of that that scandal and a few others that we got such a thing as the, the production code and, you know, not being able to show this or that on screen and the morality police coming into the movies. Because of the immoral life that these stars really yeah i think just the idea that hollywood was this you know immoral place and that you hmm. know young women were going to be seduced and murdered there and you know and in fact there obviously were there was Happened. a lot of large-scale harassment and sexism and sort of violence under the surface but in the particular case of the arbuckle trial there was no murder and there was no sexual assault either it's weird though just talking right now about that i wonder in in relative to any other you know uh walk of life 
is is there more or less sordid behavior? Do you know what I mean? It's like right. I, I mean, you, there just happens to be a camera on that industry. You well, mean. yeah, and it's just like when people go like, "There's a lot of drug addiction in, in comedians," right? I'm like, I don't know. Is there any more than any other in right job? in rug salesmen or anything else? <laughs> you right? know what I mean? But I mean, there is money and and weirdly sort of cloistered lives lived out here of of a decadent nature, only because like there's uh, well, you give someone a lot of money. And a lot of uh, and and they can hide away, right? And you know, and they can't go out anymore and act like a human. You know, who knows what's going to happen, right? And th- and th- that was all again just starting then, right? Yeah, like Hollywood was kind of a settlement. You know, they called it the film colony. You know, at the period when he first is that got what they there. called? It? Is that what you kept saying? That I that mean, was it's just it it's a called? thing you see a lot in coverage of the time. The doings in the film colony. You know, which yeah. makes it sound like it's just some outpost in a remote jungle or something like that. So the the the, the span of all his of his. Um, of his feature films, uh, Go West, Battling Butler, The General, College, and Steamboat Bill Jr. Those are the big ones. Yeah. And the Cameraman, which you said was great, right? The Cameraman is great. The Cameraman is, is uh, the first one not with his production company. That so that's the MGM? moment he gets to MGM. But but for his first movie at MGM, he managed to eke out something that was... Uh, Made money, too. It was very successful but, for them. And it, and it feels like a Keaton movie through but, and but through. But when, when you did the research and when you write this, knowing that Louis B. Mayer was this sort of like conservative, moralizing you know guy who, you know, who uh, was uh, autocratic uh, and also uh, you know incredibly greedy and powerful... Uh, did you at some point feel like he was crushing Keaton on purpose? I mean, Keaton and Mayer, it's hard to know because they had less direct contact. They they didn't like each other. And I think Mayer was not crazy about comedy in general. He knew that they needed to have a comedy arm in the studio, yeah. but it was not to his taste. You know, he liked kind of big spectacles and beautiful women and the kind of thing that MGM specialized in that you think of with MGM, and, and, big and, glossy production. And sort of, you know, mythic kind of uh, like he... It was fairy tales, you know. Like I, I, I'm, 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 I'm not finding the word, but like you, you know, he was very um, anti-sex. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was very <laughs> sort of interested in female purity, you know, yeah, on right. screen and off, and wanted his stars all to have spotless reputations, which none of them did. You know, they were all doing incredibly scabrous things behind the scenes, and he was very sentimental. He was known for this, even though he was, like you say, autocratic and could fly off the handle and yell at people. He could also cry very easily. Um, there's actually there's a there's a I can send this to you. It's great. There's a there's a little um, bit of a, a late Keaton film, uh, one of the last films he made, where he imitates Louis B. Mayer's weeping style, his sort of oh, fake really? crying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was something he would do to manipulate his employees oh yeah, um, yeah but yeah, yeah their relationship is is seemed like it was more hands-off you know they mayor worried about the money that he was wasting by you know drinking and not showing up to set on time um, but he he mainly had contact with him through you know studio lackeys sort of in fact he fired him through a, a memo that he had delivered to his to his bungalow thalberg was more like the producer that keaton was day-to-day dealing with at mgm yeah and thalberg always gets you know kind of spoken of in these heightened terms as this real artist and you know but the way that you sort of put him together in the book he he was more of a you know a a a, a kind of uh, architect of corporate filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, he's a really fascinating figure because in a way he was an artist, but the thing that he was an artist of was production, you know, and specifically big studio kind of corporate style production. So- yeah, it's just like all of this stuff sort of still rings true to me that, you know, when making the decision to to not put Buster in Grand Hotel after they said he was going to be put in because of a casting decision that would ultimately make the the movie more appealing to people going to the movies or right. something, the, by, by putting the Barrymore brothers in it. Right. 
Uh, and then not telling Buster and Buster finding out from reading it in the trades, which is a standard fucking way. Yeah, that it's this so business sad. Works. That's just that's so awful. You that always it's still hear that way. hear it secondhand that like, oh, that that's not going to happen. It's the worst, but it, it's still the way this business works. Um, also, the the idea of none of these executives or people within the development process of the of of MGM could really assess why Buster was amazing. Right, they and didn't they just get it. misread him and completely because they were shallow and they had no depth of understanding of what those movies meant. But I don't know that anybody did until long after it was done. Do you know what I mean? I think that these executives at, t- at this time must have just seen the the business evolving, not like this guy's a genius. Right. Well, I mean, Thalberg did think Keaton was very funny. And one story about him is that, you know, he loved the cameraman himself, the first movie right. he made it into sure. him, and that, and that he would ask for it to be run in his own private screening room. People would just hear him laughing in his screening room. He liked Keaton both personally and as a comedian. But I think, you know, what took precedence, like you say, ultimately was, you know, what's going to bring in audiences? What kind of product is, does MGM want to brand itself with? You know, MGM was making some great movies around that time. It's not at all the case that they were just churning out garbage, although right. Keaton's films were pretty much garbage, but successful garbage for them. That Only made because money. they didn't really, they, they didn't invest in the auteur, really. Right. I mean, all they had to do was, you know, leave him alone and give him the equivalent of his own unit within the company. And, you know, he would have he still had it in him to churn out you know, sure. movies that were as great. But, it's but in- nobody there saw that. And I don't think it's quite right that Thalberg was like the movie Mank. I don't know if you saw that movie, yeah, but it, did. it has a very small part for Thalberg. Right. There's a guy who plays him and they very much show him as this kind of corporate lackey who did everything Mayer wanted and who had no artistic vision. Right, that's right. And yeah. that seemed very reductive because I think he was extremely invested in the films that he made and extremely creative about making them. But the vision that he was trying to articulate, which was kind of what studio filmmaking was becoming then, was just something that had no room for someone like Keaton anymore. Well, and I think that I'm not sure that's not true. Are you? You mean that it could have worked? Well, I mean, like, you know, what like it it might have been that, you know, yeah, he could talk and that, you know, and right. he was OK with talking pictures. But it seems like a lot of the auteurs that were able to to sort of surface out of the studio system were guys that had undeniable uh, vision. But it was it was his undeniable vision was was dated at that point. It would have been difficult, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the Grand Hotel moment that you talked about would have been a crucial moment of kind of seeing what would have happened if he had appeared in good sound movies. Well, right? yeah, but not not necessarily as the the writer director. Right. But, you know, could he continue, uh, you know, honoring himself as a performer? Right. Right. Or could right. he? Another question: Could he have worked as just a director within the studio? I mean, he was such right. a natural exactly. when it came sure. to placing the camera. Right. You know, he had an incredible sense of sort of how right. to how to create. Right. That's true. A, but he's not a word spectacle. guy, right? So, like, you know, and even in the cameraman when he had that, you know, those one or two fights that you talk about around taking things out that mm-hmm. you saw as cluttering the narrative. Right. That even the ones that apparently were were left in were not bad choices. Right. But he just didn't think that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. He liked to keep narratives very, very clean. Right. And so there's not exactly what you'd call character development in his movies. You yeah. know, I mean, because it's more to me, it's almost more like they move like a cartoon or a comic strip. You know, it's, yeah. they have these kind of figures and they're about movement. And of course, you're emotionally invested because he has that quality of you wanting to know and understand and sort of help him get out of these horrible situations yeah, yeah. he's always getting into. But it's not about getting to know a character you know yeah. so it is really fascinating to me to think about Grand Hotel which he was almost cast in in this mm. role that Lion or Lionel Barrymore eventually played how would he have done those line readings you know yeah. how would he have worked in physical comedy I mean I, wonder. I, I, I can't it, imagine he wouldn't have been good in that role but maybe he wouldn't have made sense but that, a lot of people in that movie don't quite make sense and it's still a good movie well yeah I think you really capture really well how you know the 
how the the studio system, even at its in its infancy, it, 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 with the vision of you know manufacturing as many movies as possible to, you know, kind of uh, you know make it like a, an assembly line business and a monopoly to some degree, and how crushing it was to the spirit of these. I think that in talking to you about it, what becomes apparent is that the, the, this guy was of another time. And and he defined the time and he defined the medium and he's undeniably a genius and, and somebody totally unique in his vision. But, you know, he lived long enough and allowed himself to be sort of um, diminished and humiliated by a changing uh, industry. And it's like it, it's heartbreaking because I don't know that he by the time he was being diminished that he saw his work as as amazing as it really is or that the industry did either it seems in watching and i i still got like 100 pages of your book to read that he didn't really get his proper elevation until the 60s mm-hmm. when he was assessed by european film critics and a retrospective was put together to honor him that he was put into the 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 canon of film geniuses effectively it didn't happen until long after he was well done. keep on reading <laughs> okay. keep on reading because there is a period it's not quite that bleak i mean it certainly i think is true that as a member of the pantheon you know that didn't start to happen until the last couple years of his life as his films were restored and things like that yeah. and in fact after his death you know even more so to the point that now often you know in these kind of crowdsourced from critics lists of what are the greatest comedies of all time he'll make it on and chaplin won't even make it on right. you know like the, their reputations now we're sort of neck and neck in a way. Um, but that that did come later. But in the 1950s, in fact, he had a career resurgence that's really heartening to read about and really fun to explore oh, online when, as well. Uh, the with, live television. Stuff? Oh, with, with television. Yeah, with television, which was live at the beginning. I mean, early television, he really got in on. Oh, really good. early television. Oh, good. Yeah, and, I think I remember that from the Bogdanovich, but I'll, I'll read more in detail in your book. But so if you, this is this is why I want I want people to not take away that, you know, even though he did have this really, really dark time of alcoholism and depression in the 1930s, which I want to talk about with you as well, it's not at all the case that it's simply, you know, a, a crash and burn narrative and he was a child star and, you know, filmed. No, I didn't and feel... Then, I, I, so he really kind of clawed his way back yeah. and uh, and started to do interesting experimental things. He was not in charge of the game Beckett, to the extent he had been. He was but, in a Beckett short film, right? Yeah, yeah. That, one, of the, one of the last things that he did in the last couple years of his life in 1965, I believe it came out. He taped it in 64, but he um, he is in, in the only movie that Samuel Beckett ever wrote, which is called Film, just Film. And if that isn't a, a tip of the hat of the sort of lofty modernness kind of like you know cryptic uh, uh, you know nod I don't know what is yeah I right? mean if you think about it of course they go together sure. Beckett and Keaton yeah, you know and he Beckett in fact great. grew up loving him and watching him and Chaplin well he you know, is Godot right <laughs> in that he never arrives <laughs> no but just in that like that that play is, is sensibility wise would be good for Keaton. Oh like yeah. It. Well, I mean, he was offered the part, and, and I write about that as well. He was offered the part of um, of Lucky, who is the character who's sort of like an enslaved person, and you know, in, in Waiting for Godot, there's a guy Pozzo who brings on this other guy with a rope around his neck. Yeah. And and that character, Lucky, with a rope around his neck, is totally silent except for a couple of like gibberish speeches. These yeah. kind of long speeches that are kind of parodies yeah. of like academic gibberish. It's a really strange role. The whole play is, but I mean, that role in particular takes a very particular talent to play, yeah. right? Um, Wallace Shawn actually played that character in a in a re, in an online production of uh-huh. Godot that I saw since the pandemic. But that was the part Keaton was offered, uh, and in he the didn't original? take it in in the in the first American production. Oh, wow. So it started in France, and this was going to be the first American production. Yeah. Uh, that had Bert Lahr in it. He was oh, one of yeah. the two two main guys, uh, and Keaton was offered the part of Lucky. 
He never read the script. Yeah. His wife, Eleanor, his last wife, usually read scripts for him and sort of told him about them, and then he would decide. And she read it and said, I have no idea what the hell this is about. <laughs> and so they turned it down. But that's another kind of moment where it's a sliding doors thing, right? What would have happened if he had appeared in the first sure. Waiting for Godot? Yeah. Where you really can incorporate physical comedy and, you know, the stuff that he was so good at. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, you know, time sort of like at least gave him the honor and respect that he, he deserved and that, you know, it did turn around. And he seemed to and it seemed like you know that last marriage to Eleanor was great. Yeah, it's and, the, the fact know, that he found happiness for really the last yeah. you know I don't know third of his life. Yeah, it, it, it helps to redeem how painful it is to read about that period where he did sort of lose everything and, and lose himself. And I well. love that, like you know the the speculation that in that. In that bit where the where the building falls on him, that last movie was that it wasn't the cameraman was that was Steamboat, Steamboat Bill, Bill Jr. Jr. His last independent that yeah. you know he was so depressed and and possibly suicidal that he did he actually didn't give a shit right whether he lived or died in that stunt. Well, the background to that stunt is really I mean it it, it almost seems like it has to be a compressed timeline for a biopic or something. Yeah, but yeah. I but I think this is this is true is that the the day before or a couple days before he was going to film that stunt so it had already been you know completely rigged out and everything for this two-ton house front to fall over him uh he hears from joe skank his producer and brother-in-law who he's been making movies for patronized by you know financially for a decade almost um he hears that his his independent studio is being taken away like it's just happening this is his he's suddenly told this is your last movie that you make the way you want to make it I'm now handing you over to my brother Nick Skank who runs MGM and you're going to become an MGM contract player Skank what a name (laughs) right also uh, you know just to tell people who are listening because obviously we can't go through the whole book the way you sort of string through it you know how women are treated and, and how they're represented and the struggle of of actresses throughout this thing is kind of is good. Uh, I, I think that you know the the idea that there was in in the twenties or, or the teens there was a lot of women directors around yeah. doing yeah. this. Yeah, and then as the business became you know more. Uh, lucrative and more manageable. It just kind of became the domain of men and they were pushed out. Yeah, I mean, that was something I learned in the process of of writing and researching this that I didn't know at all, which is that there was this period in the teens, like you say, where there were more women working in the industry in high positions than there are now. You know, I think it was 1917. I remember reading this this statistic and maybe in the last couple of years it's been surpassed. But up until, you know, a couple of years ago, there were more women working in high positions like directors, cinematographers having their own production company uh, than there have been in any year since, including now. You know, yeah. like 1917 was the high point. It's <laughs> wild. And also like, you know, the, the sort of addressing the race issue from the scenes in uh, college. Is it college? Yes, there's a blackface scene in college yeah, that I and, write a chapter. And, about. and also, like talking about what's his name, Burt Williams. Burt Williams, yeah, yeah the great and the history comedian. of him and in, in, in vaudeville and you know uh, Buster's connection to vaudeville and just the way race was handled at that at that time on screen and off screen. And there was obviously an insensitivity, but was it malicious? I, I, it's hard to know, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really hard to encounter any culture of that period without finding blackface somewhere. Sure. And and even further into the 20th century, right? Judy right. Garland did blackface and Fred Astaire did blackface. And I mean, it was really, really a standard, obviously in vaudeville, but even in film for the first half of the century was a very common trope. It's so weird. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's really, uh, it's it's because it was standard and because there was this lack of, of cultural empathy that, you know, it just, I don't think these people really thought of it as anything insulting. Yeah. I mean, I think, it, it, well, even watching Mad Men, you kind of see that, right? I mean, it's, it's really taken until the last 25 years or so, you know, Spike Lee's movie about blackface, you know, for us to start that, to that look at it. That thing is, is uh, I watched that again, specifically to sort of feel the weight 
of what minstrelsy really look like. Bamboozled. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Spike Lee It movies. really is because, you know, he went out of his way to heighten the production values of that minstrel show to such a degree to where the grotesqueness of it uh, is is becomes more apparent because of how meticulous he played it. How How, you know, not only historically accurate, but so heightened was like, it was mind-blowing to me. Remains mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I rewatched that actually when I was writing the chapter about Burt Williams because really? I was just reading and watching everything I could get my hands on about blackface and that that movie really impressed me, like more than it did when it, when it came out. It's really aged incredibly well. Yeah, I don't love the... the, 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 the I think it gets a little hokey. I think that Damon you know, did something with that character that was annoying. But but I but just for the the footage of the show alone. Yeah, that's what I mean. The film yeah. within a film or whatever. That, the show. That within was a the film. whole thing. One thing I wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about. Yeah. Was um was was drinking. I mean, we haven't really talked about his alcoholism in that period, which is something that I feel like has been either undercovered or overcovered in discussion of Keaton. Right? There's either kind of wallowing in the dark years and sort of pretending that he never got out yeah. of it, and then as other biographers have done, just glossed over it entirely. You know, and, yeah. and understandably, his widow Eleanor did not like for that period of his life to be dwelt on. It was yeah. relatively short in terms of duration. You know, it was just a few years of his life, but. Where he was like, you know... uh, Like down and out, you know? I mean, he really was at sort of rock bottom to use AA language, which he would never have used himself. But, you know, that period, which happened to coincide with the Great Depression, right? How ironic is that? He is suddenly just walloped by depression and alcoholism and just a really non-functioning marriage and a non-functioning life. And it becomes clear for the first time, as will happen when somebody is a child star and has, you know, been basically like working since age five to make people laugh, right? He just, he just hit this wall, you know, and it just seems like he could really have drunk himself to death, you know, at that that moment. But he Um, didn't. Right. And, and, And somehow he dried himself out, you know, via these sort of awful drying out methods and systems that existed at the time, you know, yeah, getting sent to sanitariums and, yeah. and cures and things like that. And at some point, he just somehow white knuckled it through and made it work. But as I also write about, making it work meant a very different thing in his life and at that moment than, than it would now. So it was, you know, he was not some sober guy who was drinking green juice and yeah, like yeah. preaching the sure. wonders of sobriety or sure. something like that. In fact, he fell off the wagon several more times during his life. You know, it seems like he, his whole life he had this very conflicted relationship to addiction and alcohol. And it was in part because he was such a shutdown guy, you know, such an well, impassive like, face. It, it, like he, he did not, he was not in touch with himself. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, but even if you are, I mean, you know, alcoholism, if you want to, you know, believe the disease model, you know, is something that is not you you're going to be a victim of it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not a matter of self-awareness or anything else, because once you start, it's like fucking game over. Right. And you're going to have to reel it back in however possible. Or right. Live it. Right. I guess I just mean that we have more of a model now to understand. That. I guess. But like the, the success of sobriety is limited still. It's, right, it's, right. It's do not, you believe in the disease model yourself? Or I mean, I know it's I do. a complex thing, but I, I kind of do, you know, because like the the disease model would be, it's sort of multi tiered, right? So it's a uh, it's a, a, a malady of uh, it's a physical, mental, and spiritual malady. So like the idea that it's this trifecta of things, like if you remove the spiritual thing which is, you know, you can, and just deal with this sort of biological nature of it and whether it's conditional or not. Right. Either whether you got it psychologically because you grew up in it or there actually is a genetic component, I have to sort of look at the propensity to be an alcoholic or an addict as as a disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's why not? Right, right. (laughs) Because then it's treatable. If you don't call it a disease, 
then you're going to try to will it away, which never seems to work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you. I sadly have to go to a funeral now. So I, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Bob Saget passed. I know. God, yeah. that's going to be a sad affair. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to run over there. I got to go put a black suit on. Black suit for award shows and funerals. That's what they're for. Well, yeah. thanks. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me, and thanks for reading the book. Like, I'm really excited that you're actually reading it. I know you can't you know, read everything that. Comes no, I know, but desk, I wanted. But... Yeah, I wanted to, and I wanted to make sure I was engaged with it. And uh, and it was. Uh, it, it's. I. I think it's great. Because it, it's got me thinking again about, you know, why why film is important, that these people are people, you know, what is art and film and just history in general. Because I think now, because everything operates at such a kind of frenetic present uh, that we're just losing any sense of history. Maybe it's just because I'm old. I don't know. What do you find? <laughs> that we're losing any sense of history? I, I mean, I didn't write the book out of that fear or no, that no, sense. but. But yeah, I mean, there's a big legacy part to, to writing this book as well and feeling like I, I would feel this when I would talk to people like I interviewed um, Kevin Brownlow, who's a silent film scholar who's yeah. in his 80s, who really, I mean, the reason that a lot of these oral histories of, of people from the silent era have survived is because he took them in the 60s. He's incredible. And, you know, getting to interview someone like that, you know, for, for my book makes me feel like I'm carrying the torch, you know, and okay. I want to be one of those people who's kind of making sure that six-year-olds get to laugh at Buster Keaton movies. Oh, in fact, we're screening some for kids in New York oh, at the time the book comes out. It's a noble effort. I mean, it's just there's some of the great works of American art, I you think know. You're right. So I think they need to be out there, and people need to know they're there. Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm glad to help that effort. Well, thank you so much Thanks for having for me on. It was a delight. There you go. Uh, Cameraman is now available wherever you buy books. Uh, it's a great read, especially if you're a film buff or a film head or a Buster Keaton fan. Again, the new dates for uh, for Napa are Friday, uh, February 18th. The new dates for San Francisco is Saturday, February 19th. The new date for San Luis Obispo, Saturday, March 5th. And the new date for Santa Barbara, Sunday, March 6th. Um, I shall not be moved. Well, actually, I, I was. I'm. I moved those dates, but I'm setting up the song.
Boomer lives. Monkey. LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere. Thank <laughs> you.